welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus and I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus. Another day, another podcast. John, how's everything going? Oh, great. You know why we're here? We're here to give the people what they want, of course. (laughs) Exactly. And what do you want, people? Well, one thing that might help is today's sponsor of the podcast is our High Performance West Academy Scholar Program. Now, what this is, is a program that John and I created for coaches to kind of take you to the next level. It includes, gosh, I think probably over 200 um, articles, podcasts, etc. on all things coaching, plus two seasons um, of specific coaching content, one on training for the marathon and cross country, one on the psychological aspects of training, plus includes uh, basically monthly Zoom get-togethers with high-profile guests like strength coach extraordinaire uh, Dan John, uh, who we had on, on last month, and a variety of other coaches. So it's basically John and I trying to uh, give... Uh, Give a coaching education that that we wish we had when we were we were younger and and getting into this. So trying to pass on that information. So it, it's essentially just the best shit out there. Like that's kind of <laughs> like to whittle it down. That's what Steve and I, you know, talked about over all these years. And for people who've been longtime listeners and followers of Steve and I, you know, High Performance West has gone through a lot of uh, you know evolutions and uh, maturity, and we really just realized like, look. Yes, there are certifications that are out there that are more established that for sure you should get, but that's a one and done, right? So if I get my level one or if I get a um, a USTF CCCA Academy credential, which I have several of, it's one and done. The whole concept of the scholar program is continuous education, continuous improvement. And it really stemmed from like, say, my wife, who's a physical therapist who needs several continuing education units per year. She goes to these different clinics or conferences or online practicums, and that's what we're doing here, but on a month-to-month, day-to-day basis. And this is the way to like keep leveling up, and that's the goal of the Scholar Program. Level up, level up, level up, because Steve and I level up by researching and creating content, and we also you know, have all the you – know, I think we have over 300 scholars now who level up every day, so – join and it's awesome and if it's not awesome let us know because the whole idea is we're trying to make it awesome yep and we've yeah we've we're, we're just trying to amplify that right now you as i said john and i shoot for uh, at least three uh new items every week um and in-depth item items we don't skim the surface and as i said we just added a new uh psychology uh going into and very in deep on that and then added this uh Zoom get-togethers, which are live meetings with, again, some of the best coaches or sports scientists or whoever in the business so that you get to interact. Right now, think, or because of COVID, we're running essentially a 50% off program. So if you want to take advantage of that, check the link in the show notes and um, you can use the coupon. I think it's stronger together, but check the link in the show notes and uh, get 50% off. And if you don't like it, let us know and we'll work something out. So, with that being said, this week's episode, the fine line between serious and obsessive. Mm. Yeah, and it's a very fine line indeed. 
<laughs> you know, this is a topic I love exploring. Uh, if you've read my book, The Passion Paradox, it actually kind of explores um, a little bit about this. And then, you know, I think John and I, as athletes turned coaches and very kind of driven people in a, in a lot of different fields, like we've experienced this fine line of um, serious versus obsessive and like the benefits of being very serious about your training, but how that can, you know, quickly turn as you go over this edge and towards this obsessiveness. And sometimes I think as coaches, we, we almost push or like validate people who go into this obsessive thinking that like, oh man, they're, they're the most serious athlete, but we have to keep our eye out and look where our athletes are on this serious versus obsessive kind of continuum. Yeah. I, the hard part is there needs to be an air of enjoyment with you, the work you do. Right. And I always go back to uh, the words attributed to Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita the labor, the work is the reward. Oftentimes, we lose sight of that, that we're just doing something for as a means to an end. But in reality, the day-to-day process, as we call it, you know, hashtag love the process, that's the reward. And if you're not having some type of energy and enthusiasm and enjoyment with it, there, it's a clear signal that you've kind of deviated from the path that's going to lead to the most fruit. And that's always the hard thing about life, right? It's that concept of moderation and what's moderate that's going to yield uh, a blossoming of either individual's ability to compete, their awareness, or their overall health and well-being. And Steve and I, you know, individually as young athletes and failed athletes, and as coaches of very successful athletes, have watched and tried to sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully buffer and um, help athletes make that pitfall of moving from the uh, obsessive to the, um, or moving from the enjoyment to the obsessive category. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like when I step back and define these things, I think of it as it's (laughs) serious is what I would call driven by care, right? It's sustainable over the long haul because you care about it and this love and enjoyment of doing it like is one of the drivers. Now, there might be other drivers of like competitiveness and like even a touch of fear, but like your overall driver is this is important to me. This has value. I care about it. So I'm going to pursue this. Now, the obsessive happens when that that drive, that value shifts a little bit towards driven by fear or angst or some insecurity, right? And like you, you go down this path of almost caring too much and that your identity and the thing you're doing, we'll say running in this, this case, becomes so deeply intertwined that you can't... You can't take the failures. You can't take the setbacks. They become an attack on who you are and what you're doing. And what happens over the long time is that's not sustainable, right? Or it's very, very hard to be sustainable. You know, very very few athletes, maybe a, a Michael Jordan can sustain it in some ways. 
But even if you look at Jordan, who's um, that recent Last Dance uh, documentary kind of showed, is even Jordan, like, it was sustainable. But even he, like, had this, like, feeling of angst, this this feeling of relief and not joy after winning championships and had to take two years off in the middle to play baseball and then retired early again after his sixth championship only to come back, you know, for two years late in his career. And I wonder if like, well, Jordan used this anger angst obsession to get there. Like it also led to him like having to step away at certain points. And that's, I think the fine line we, you know, we're all susceptible in being tripped up by that. Right. Um, You know, athletes I've worked with sometimes what's addicting or what is exciting and that turns into addiction is the idea of progress and improvement. And as coaches, we fall victim to it as well, right? We preach a mantra of work harder, you know, get better, um, you know, commit, be all in. My favorite was in college. Um, you know, my coaches always told me, be businesslike in your approach. And it, it in some ways, it means this obsessive, compulsive, like almost OCD all in, right? And where we kind of um, put far too much weight in meeting over numbers that we can supposedly control, like how many miles you're running in a given period, how much you weigh, you know, on a scale on a given period, how fast things are. And, you know, we often forget, I'm really, and I was reminded recently of the value of kind of this polarized approach of being, you know, as Steve and I talked about in previous podcasts, turning the switch on and turning it off and being all in and being all out. And if we look at nature and we look at how things optimize in the natural world, it really is polarized. And this is where I think Americans kind of especially lose the plot now in the Strava era is where you have this, you're constantly on and comparing things that don't need comparison, like how, what pace your quote unquote easy day is. Uh, you know, I always go back to my time at University of Portland as a young assistant coach with Alfred Kipchumba, who was their school record holder in the 10K, you know, multiple time All-American cross country finishing in the high teen, high and low teens year in, year out. And one summer Alf got hurt and he was coming back that year and he he was just completely out of shape. Like eight weeks to go, completely out of shape after his injury. And he's like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And, you know, and it's constantly he had this like, it's okay, because he knew how to get ready. And so what would happen is even the guys who were less capable than him and uh, who were trying to fill his spot, so to speak, during being fit and during the middle of the season, they go out for their easy run and go out at a, you know, a steady clip that's typical for young college males, like six minutes, 630 pace for a 10 mile run, right? And Alf would sit there running 839 minute pace. And so, I mean, and this is, he's not in shape and you're like, oh, he's running 839 minute pace on a 10 mile run day and he's not in shape. So, you know, Rob and uh, Jesse Johnson, and I at first were like, holy F, like he's really not going to be right. He can't even do an easy run, uh, you know, for 10 miles at faster than 830. So, like, oh, no, it's okay. I'm, I must get the body ready. Like he knew without a doubt what he was doing because then he would just, every workout he goes, 
the most important is workout. The workout is most important. And so, and he would come and crank workouts. And sometimes in that, those early weeks, only go halfway or three quarters and not finish and be up with those, you know, and this is with like the second group, like the B, B squad. But then week by week, inch by inch, he moved forward from the not being able to finish workouts with the B squad to then being, you know, showing readiness and willingness to want to jump in with the A squad, couldn't finish workouts with them, and so on and so forth until the end of the year when it came, came time to cross-country nationals. He was the top guy in All-American again. <laughs> but throughout the whole period, he ran his like easy runs a very, very slow, like 8.39 minute pace the whole period because he understood what mattered and he had some joy with it. And sometimes I'd run with him, he'd go, we'd like start w- walking in the middle of that easy run in the forest. And I go, he goes, and I'm like, oh, why are you walking? He goes, no, no, do you see, like he was like, you see that bird? You see, you see the owl? Like he was looking around at other things <laughs> on this easy run. It wasn't, I need to get 80 miles a weekend at this pace or faster or else I'm not going to be confident. He understood where to be serious and when to enjoy. And that swing of the pendulum, that oscillation, that rhythm, so key. I think sometimes we forget about it because we get obsessive about these supposed numbers that determine our, that we think determine our readiness or ability. When in reality, some numbers that are more, that or in the more of the OCD world kind of um, limit us or hold us far back or put us more at risk than putting us closer towards the reward. You, you know, that that serious person enjoy thing is, I think, a really good concept because I think, I think we have to see the serious as draining the bucket a little bit or we'll say our emotional bucket of like how far we can push and all that stuff. Um, it drains the bucket so that we can we can eventually fill it back up, get get stronger, and that enjoyment piece is is that part that like fills the bucket back up, right? So we can drain it again, right? And like far too often we put a focus on the draining things without like the refilling. And I think if I look back to my career, like during the time periods when I was doing a lot of work, but it was like sustainable, enjoyable were times when like the easy runs, like I used as my filling the bucket periods, right? It wasn't to put in the work. It was, it was like, okay, I'm going to do this, but like, I'm going to go spend an hour running with my friends and shooting the shit and enjoying it. You know, I think of the summer training periods in Houston during high school and college uh, years for myself as it was like a a social outlet. And sometimes we would run 730 pace, you know, uh, me and my good friend Marcel, um, who uh, made a world championship team, like our, our college coach would get on us for running 730 pace sometimes. Or he wouldn't get on us, but he'd just joke around of like, you know, I think he said like Wisconsin had the Badger mile system where they counted runs at seven minute pace. And then like, here we have guys who actually run slower than seven minute pace. Um, but like those were fill the bucket type runs. And I think that that enjoyment phase is something that we lose sometimes if we go too far into this obsessive phase. And one other point on that is I think it's 
it's like the story you told there with Alf is it's it 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 it's being secure in knowing what you're capable of and what you need to do, right? The insecurity drives the obsessiveness, right? And I've been there. It's insecure insecurity and in not knowing. Okay, am I gonna make it? Okay, like is all this work going to get me fast enough to run PRs or help the team or whatever? The insecurity drives it. But if you can, if you can create this sense of security in, in terms of what you're capable of, who you are, what you need to do, then the worrying, like the angst kind of goes by the wayside. And you say, this is, this is the process I need to take. I'm going to trust this process and not stress over it and not like, you know, perform all these other things uh, just out of insecurity. And it puts you in a better place in the end. And, you know, I know I'm talking a lot on this, but I think there's, you know, I've seen this myself, both as an athlete and as a college coach, for example, uh, with athletes who, uh, who, who struggle kind of with this obsessive compulsive, um type behavior when it comes to training you know we used to have this one athlete who would sneak out for second runs right and do them on their do them on their own when they weren't like part of the program or part of the plan and that the reason they would sneak out is they had this angst of like well you know, this person's better than me. I'm only this on the team. Like I need to get better. So like I need to do quote unquote extra work and extra work means sneaking out and doing more secondary runs than I'm supposed to. And this will get, this will get me better. And that, that was driven out of insecurity. And I think like that security versus insecurity, what's the driver like goes a long way into um, defining where we are on this, this, uh, line between serious and obsessive and that's you know it's hard it's not easy like a lot of people make this uh pitfall and are susceptible to this athlete and coach because it's not an easy line to draw it's not an easy understanding to have as a coach though i think that is one of the key things that you need to be able to decipher is understand what matters and measure what matters. You know, and I, I realized that going back and, you know, reading a lot of early Lydiard uh, writings and listening to lectures from Lydiard, you know, shameless plug for the um, scholar program, we have a three-hour lecture from Arthur Lydiard with uh, Halberg and Snell uh, when he went to Speed City, San Jose State in the late 60s. And it's amazing to hear them talk in their own words about the Lydiard system. It is not what you think. It's not hammer every day. The, the thing is, the only miles that counted, that they counted as training, were the miles they ran at six-minute pace or faster. And they would shoot for 100 miles a week at six-minute pace or faster. But they would not count warm-up miles they would not count jogging. Lydiard was a big jogging proponent for general health and wellness. And jogging was about creating looseness and bounce and rhythm, but you didn't count it as quote unquote training. And I think that's the thing, right? When you look at uh, my, like if we, as a quick tangent, you look at mileage that might've been counted in the 60s, 70s and 80s by some runners, you go, oh, they might've been very low mileage. But 
a lot of them are only counting the quality of miles. Um, you know, Harry Wilson only counted quality of miles. If it was below a certain threshold, even though you covered the distance, it didn't count as training because it was in a different bucket. It was in a restorative bucket, right? Like going for a walk or sleeping or whatever. And this is where we've kind of missed the plot as we just said, all miles are equal. And the more miles you run, the more better you'll be. It's a very simplistic black and white narrative, but it's not the truth. The truth is you need to find the right balance for you. And that's where these, the warm up, the jog, pulley pulley, as the Kenyans talk about it, the idea is to create looseness and bounce. And it's just supposed to be very restorative to, as Steve said, fill the bucket or give you energy back. And, you know, I've seen this multiple times happen. The, the, the reality is, if you're not on performance-enhancing drugs, the harder you work out, <laughs> the easier and more relaxed that your your non-workout uh, restorative pursuits must be. And that's the truth. And it's tough because people want to think like, oh, if I'm good, I'm good, and everything is good. And they hear these things about athletes who do these killer workouts, and the next day they're on an easy run for like, 10 miles at 5.30 pace, and then they come back and do another easy run of 10 miles at 5-minute pace for men or whatever. And you're like, Steve and I know that's not real. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's happened, but it's not It's not unaided. Uh, you know, great example is Tara Welling, who I've often, you know, demonstrated as a poster child for a shift in performance ability once she understood and was at peace with this polarity reality. The previous program she was at, you know, we, she had a famous now uh, drug cheat coach who said, hey, you have to do everything at the highest intensity possible. Your easy days can't be slower than this. And she would run insane workouts and then crush herself on her easy day. And eventually she would either get sick or hurt or both and also not have her performance be in requisite with her uh, demonstrated work capacity from practice. When finally the big thing that I had to convince her of when I worked, when I worked with her was saying, you have to just not run non-workout days any faster than eight minute pace. So it has to be eight minute pace or slower. And we did everything under the sun, like had other people run with her. I ran with her, like try to keep her accountable. And it took some time, but slowly but surely, the workout quality went up as the rejuvena rejuvenation or bucket filling of the restorative days became more manageable. And then it wasn't this like, I have to get up for every single day. It's like, yeah, I can easily slog an eight-minute you know, mile pace for five, five, five mile run. No problem. That's not even, not even a question, right? Because there's an oxidative recovery benefit that has restorative value, but there's also psychological value there. I'm not having to get up and saying, can I push myself to the limit today and every day? That's not what training is designed to be. And then sure, sure enough, right? Her, she started to have a, her breakthrough year in 2016, where everything in that spring was just a, a national title or a PR every time nearly except for like once or one or two when she stepped on the track or the, the start line, right? And it, it wasn't rocket science, but it, but it was so counterculture to, at that time and probably still is now more than ever. Because it's counterculture, we don't believe it because the micro updates you get 
on these really, you know, shallow platforms of Instagram or Strava or whatever, you know, it's like step back and think macro. And that's what I did as her coach at the time. I go, what matters most? Getting in a position to be fit enough and race ready enough to try to make an Olympic team on the track in the 10K and or 5K. You know, she finished top 10 in both those races, didn't make the team, but that was the best finish, you know, finish position she's ever had. And it was through a blend of really, really hard workouts. Don't get me wrong. The workouts were hard. They were tough. They were high demand. She didn't finish, you know, a third of them because it was just so, they're brutal. But the easy days were like chill out. And when she got that rhythm down, everything was great. And then unfortunately, towards the end of our coach athlete relationship, what happened was she swung back to her old habits, right? She said, Oh, I got to raise the ceiling, you know, so to speak, instead of raising the floor, Steve and I have talked about on my easy days, my easy days have to be faster because that shows I'm more fit. And it's like, no, no, no. Remember rest is the most important thing in training. The work you do sets up the rest you need. You know, it's interesting because I, I think that in running, sometimes we get this idea that like, or we fall into these patterns of like, okay, we're going to go two hard days, a long run, and the rest of the days are going to be easy or moderate at X pace or whatever. And we, we tend to define them without a, a, without allowing for too much nuance, you know? Um, and what I mean by that is we tend to classify all easy or all normal or all recovery days as the same, meaning go out and run, right? And, and sometimes like coaches, as you mentioned there, will say you need to do this at all of these easy runs at six minute pace. But, you know, I, I don't know a ton about the Kenyan program, but I know that like from those who have gone to Africa and trained and stuff like that is there's, there's days when they'll run eight thirty pace, right? And there's days when they'll run relatively fast on stuff. And if you look at, you know, the old Lydiard guys, it's the same There's there's mornings when they got up and jogged and didn't count the mileage, but did it as a recovery. And there's days when they did, you know, 15 miles at sub six minute pace for their quote unquote, you know, easy or normal day. And I think we've lost a little of the picture with taking that out of it, right? Of, you know, not seeing the nuance within the training or the, you know, the normal mileage days. And to me, it's, it's just that, that, um, that question you're, you're trying to answer is how much stress can I handle while keeping it sustainable? And where do I want to keep that stress? So if, if you want to put all that stress on your couple hard days or your long run, then the days in between have to be much easier, right? If you want to spread some of that stress out and you say, you know what, for this athlete, I need higher quality, easy days, then like something else has to give until you're like boosted up to where you can sustain that level. And I think, you know, rightly you pointed out that like those who have high quality every day, 
with no recovery in there are <laughs> mainly artificial. The rest of us have to figure out what's sustainable and where and where we put that emphasis. And I think, you know, that emphasis changes. I'll give you examples in the summer for my college kids, right? Because most of them are training in, in Texas, like our easy runs or the easy runs, I, I don't put any emphasis on intensity whatsoever. I just say, get in the run. I don't care. Because the stress is coming from the humidity and then heat in the environment. So the volume is the key of we need to get this in and just get it in however you want. And then we'll worry about adding intensity later because I'm considering that. Now, as the season progresses, you know, we might include some more intensity or some more faster runs on our normal runs in addition to the workouts as those patterns change. But I think adding that nuance to it and understanding that there isn't just hard and easy, but there's a broad spectrum between. The goal isn't just to intensify everything to get better. Sometimes, you know, you need to intensify something, but then you need to decrease the intensity on something else. And like giving guidance in that area is uh, is really helpful. You know, one of the things that I always look at if someone's starting to get stale is not the workouts, but I look at what they're doing on the paces in between the workouts. Because that's easy to adjust. I can tell them, you know what? You're trying to run six-minute pace every day. Like, I don't think the workouts are too hard. I just think you're not recovering in between. So let's slow that down to seven-minute pace. See if you can then handle these workouts. And if you can, because I've decided the workouts are the important part for now, then we'll worry about at a later date adjusting that the normal days if we need to. But like giving more thought and care to that, I think is something that, you know, uh, we often don't do in the world of distance running. And you have to ask yourself, what do you want? Do you want to be a comet or meteor and maybe have one shining season and that's it? And then forever try to crawl your way back to that that season that was your pinnacle? Or do you want sustained, competitive success? And th- that's that's tough, right? Because we live in this world of, you know, let's outdo each other on a day-to-day basis now, right? We need to outdo each other on social media, who has the most likes or views of whatever thing you posted or Strava or whatever, or some time trial that doesn't mean much, you know, it's, we're, we're losing the plot. The plot is about competitive pursuit. It is when we come together and we compete in races, we do more because we're trying to beat an opponent than we do on our own or when we're focused on trying to better our clock time. And that is why racing matters so much. One of the most brilliant 5Ks ever, right, in modern history, in my opinion, was uh, the Commonwealth Games in the early 2000s with Craig Mottram and another, um, in in a series of Kenyan athletes, right? What happened in that race was the Kenyan athletes just said, we're hammering from step one. And it was like the the announcers were shocked. They're like, it's like it's a diamond league and there's no rabbit. And it was awesome. I mean, everyone ended up running like like broke 13 or low 13s who hung on, which was like a couple guys, you know. But Matram was like 
yeah, I'm going to stick my nose in it. This is what I prepared for. Not this like lay back, sit back championship. Let's take it as easy as possible out of fear. It was that old school blood and guts prefontaine style racing. And that creates an energy of saying, wow, I've never seen anyone do, do, do this before. And like, this is what we need to um, protect against is this deviation to the mean of everyone just trying to copy and paste and polish what everyone else is doing versus this originality versus this, let's do it how it's supposed to be done. And people are like, I've never seen anyone do it like this before. That to me is the creative art and beauty of racing when done, you know, at a high level as a, as a expression of craft. And more than anything, I think we need to just look at examples that we know were sustainable and we know that yield success. So, you know, you talk to Chris Zelensky, you talk to Alan Webb, they had those, you know, metric years where, or meteoric, or uh, memorable years, right? And that people are reliving now or re- revisiting now in this lack of race content era of um, the COVID pandemic wave of 2020 spring. And we're going back to, when Slinsky was on fire and he, he broke the American record and ran her 13 a couple times when Webb 2007 or in high school, but even them, it wasn't sustainable, right? Like Chris said, okay, what I'm going to do is just do what I did to get me here. Just crank harder and harder. And after that, he basically ended his career, tore a hamstring and he never got back anywhere close to that semblance of where he was. And it's almost like that was a curse being at that such that rarefied air because now that was the standard for his, ba- that was his baseline now. And the same thing with Webb, the same thing with Alan. Like, you know, working with him, you know, in the build up to his farewell mile at Milrose indoors, it was like he, he still had this psychological, you know, belief that if it's not special, as he called it, it didn't count. And for Alan, special was, and I remind him all the time, still to this day, special is the most special of any human being in the mile for the last 20 years. Like, dude, <laughs> that's a pretty high standard. It's like saying, well, if I don't make a billion off this off this investment or trade, it's not even worth doing. It's the wrong outcome-oriented mindset. It's obsessive. You're obsessing over what the outcome is. And that's the thing. I reminded Alan and I reminded Slow, you know, in quiet conversations. How did you get to that level in the first place? Did you know you were going to, when you're training the year before, going to do this in the mile or do this in the 10K? Of course, the answer was no. They actually fell in love with the process. One of the things people don't really know about Slinsky is he went home for like two months um, that winter and just trained on his own and ran by field because he was getting a little run down and worn down from being with the group and having to get up or conform to the group because you know like any runner chris is kind of like or his demeanor was you know the, the rocket right he was kind of his own he beat to his own drum a little bit and he would just go out and run as he felt most days and like a lot of it was sub six minute pace but he was just running as he felt not like i have to run these main miles at sub six it just happened same thing for alan in 2007 you look at the training logs it just started to happen and it kept happening because Alan was doing Alan. Alan wasn't worried about all these externals or living up to XYZ or having the workout be better than the workout. Um, that day's workout be better than the previous week's workout. It just kind of had a natural progression. There are ups and downs. There are some crummy workouts in there. And then the amazing workouts we talk about that gave him confidence and hope and a vision. 
And it's the same situation here. That being serious, being professional means there's an enjoyment in all phases of the work. Even the stuff that we post on social media to get praise of, look at my workout splits, but also in the recovery activities and the lack of impressiveness of them. <laughs> it's not impressive to say recovery day, seven miles at 845 pace. It doesn't, it's that you're not, anyone can do that, but it's the oscillation of the two that matters most. And I encourage people, and you know, I think Stephen, it warrants us putting it up on the um, scholar uh, program is Greg Lamont's complete book of cycling has in it probably the best chapter I've ever read on training for endurance sport. It's chapter six. It's called Training and Fitness for the Serious Cyclist. But in it, Lamont, or, um, Greg Lamont succinctly outlines the rhythm of hard, easy, hard, easy, break down, refill the bucket, and what that looks like for a cyclist. And it's very explicit on how easy or playful or recreational the non-difficult um, workout days are on the bike, and also very explicit on how difficult the workout days are on the bike. It's by far the best resource I've ever had that comes from the mouth of someone who did it and did it clean at a high level. You know, that's interesting. I've never read that book, so I just uh, just jotted it down to uh, get a copy. And just that chapter. Uh, kind of the rest of it, you know, kind of falls flat for our purposes as runners. But, yeah, man, that chapter is just gold. Got it. I will check that out. I think that's interesting because, you know, in a lot of ways, the drug era has distorted that natural rhythm. You know, and mm -hmm. I, I was talking to someone the other day after this Lance Armstrong documentary dropped and they were saying that like, well, Lance still revolutionized like training and like all of these things. Like he was obsessive and about it, you know, uh, during an era in cycling when they did, they weren't beforehand. And, you know, I was like, well, stop. Like, of course, Lance trained really hard. Like, no doubt about that. But he didn't do anything for training because, like, when you took drugs, you have a greater bandwidth. You stop worrying about this rhythm because it doesn't matter because you can artificially enhance your recovery, take testosterone, whatever it is that allows you to to bounce back, you know, to come back and not worry about this, like, going into this overtraining or like fatigue or whatever, because you're going to come out of it if you're on, on, on the special sauce. So, or like when you, when you were the guinea pig of L-carnitine. Yeah. No, exactly. Right? I mean, you felt it. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you come back, you bounce back. Like you can do crazy stuff. It's the crazy stuff thing, you know? <laughs> and, and, and that's where I think like, it's like, no, like these people who did things who cross boundaries, like, they didn't they didn't help training science or paradigm they hurt it because they gave this this idea that like you can do it all and you can do you can have it all all the time if it's like the old american way of like oh if i just work harder i'll get there no 
because like you need to work hard, but your your quality of work will go down as fatigue mounts. And that's the mm. same in working. It's it's why you, you can't work hundred hour weeks sustainably. It's why you can't, you know, run, you know, quality mileage weeks sustainably either for a long period of time if there's too much intensity or volume. And, you know, we've tried. We're both pushers. We yeah. have tried in our own little ways, and we have burnt out. <laughs> exactly, in all facets. So, like, uh-huh. y- you know, that's where I think this this era that we had, which was higher in drugs and stuff and kind of all that stuff, like mass, or put in this false paradigm that, like, oh, we can have it all. We can do the high intensity. We can do the high volume. We can, we can run our easy days at six minute pace or faster every single day and uh and be okay and that just isn't reality and we need to step back and i think that's why greg lamond is a great example because here's a guy who did it clean and he's emphasizing like you know i trained really hard but like i needed this i needed to understand this rhythm that my body went through that my body had to go through during this hard training and this easy recovery and if we don't accept that rhythm and one other thing that that came to mind and i tweeted this out is the best way to check this is by looking at when we go through natural uh, performance and enhancing drugs which is male puberty Okay. Testosterone is a hell of a drug. <laughs> Testosterone is a hell of a drug. So, but but here's my thought: like male, like, and I've thought about this for a long time and looked at it. High school kids generally get better, no matter what we do. Okay, correct. <laughs> so, and this isn't a dig on high school coaches. I think you play a huge role. I think you can set athletes up for success, but a, a lot of times you don't see those results until years down the line if you've set them up correctly, both from a motivation and a physiological standpoint. But we've all seen high school kids who have run extremely fast off 30 miles a week, who have run extremely fast off 100 miles a week, who have run extremely fast doing six days of 10 by quarter every single day, right? And doing that the day before races and still improving. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, puberty puberty can hide bad coaching, right? But why? Because you have an influx of testosterone that is just shooting through the roof and growth hormones and all that stuff thanks to, thanks to puberty, right? And it allows kids to do crazy things and bounce back. But we can't mistake, like, we can't mistake, oh, look, this really hard training Let's take Jim Ryan, for example. Look how hard Jim Ryan trained as a high schooler and young collegiate athlete. Like, he ran a world record. This is the way to do it. Well, part of the reason Ryan could sustain that early on is because, again, puberty, testosterone, youth, growth hormone, right? All going crazy. As Jim Ryan went later into his career, like, he struggled with burnout right? He's an injury and injury and Mm -hmm. fatigue and all of these things because like he couldn't, you know, he he couldn't sustain the intensity and volume of work that he could when he was younger because he wasn't on, on the natural puberty high. Yep. And and that's like, again, not to belabor the point, but that's like the indicator right there that like, that is what happens when you don't have to worry 
or puberty mask or drugs mask, like this worrying of this undulation of hard and easy recovery stress. And when we don't have that, which is for most of our lives, like we have to take that into consideration and like realize the long term damage that can be done if we don't give it its due. Yeah, I'm a big hormone fan. I'm huge. Like, you know, I mean, hormones have a much bigger impact than anyone knows or thinks just because we have an infancy of understanding of how much is involved with all the different hormones. Like, you know, testosterone is key. And I'm a big fan of testosterone. Like, one of the reasons women I work with tend to run faster is we do testosterone promoting activities. And it's just I prefer a natural way to create that testosterone boost. Other more famous coaches who are now banned preferred a more unnatural synthetic way to get the boost, right? And it it does make people more and athletes more durable and and have a higher recoverability. And that's the thing like why weightlifting is so key for men and women of any sport is because it's a natural testosterone booster when it's done correctly. When I was younger, coach, I used to have these marathon weight sessions where athletes were in their weight room for, you know, an hour, 90 minutes, etc. I realized now after many years of study and talking to, you know, the best in the best on this is you need to be in the weight room no longer than 40 minutes. That's the max. 20 to 40 minutes is a sweet spot. That includes the rest time. So this concept that we need to do all these weight room activities and stick it in, it's like well, if you understand what you're trying to do in the weight room, which for runners is create uh, mobility, general neuromuscular, um, contractile strength and speed and accuracy and testosterone enhancement, you can be in the weight room. You can have a day where you run two runs at eight minute pace for 30 minutes, do a double and then be in the weight room for 20 minutes. And you can do that. I've done this with athletes who are high responders the day before workout or two days before workout or do strides and then get in the weight room, right? Because what you're trying to do is hormonally give the athlete a boost as long as then they follow through with the next steps, which is not consuming ethanol, right? Because alcohol is just a testosterone decreasing agent. So, and it's also a sleep interrupting agent. So just don't, there's no need for an athlete to consume it who's in training and wants to improve. And then also sleep, sleep, right? Copious amounts of sleep we know is testosterone improving. So like Steve said, though, if you take this, this, the performance enhancing or synthetic drug just allows you to be more sloppy and get away with it. That's the reality. You can get the hormonal boost you want by the positioning your training environment and schedule in the right sequence so that you can get those aids naturally because the body will make it on its own if you give it the appropriate signaling. And I think that's the thing, right? The obsessive people want that guaranteed security and want to just, it's kind of weird because they're almost a little bit more like sloppy because they think if I just run these main miles, if I just do this time, if I just hit this, if I just make this happen, then everything will be all good. And for a little while, it may yield dividends, but over the long run, it's going to corrode. It's going to disrupt. It's going to make you hate the sport, 
going to make you fall out of love with the, the sport. It's going to ruin you psychologically, physically, all these types of things. Like, and I've seen it firsthand where athletes got to a certain pinnacle through one mode or one em- way of emphasizing training and then didn't have the confidence and faith in themselves and in the direction like I as a coach was saying, this is the new stimulus and novel way we have to go to get more um, growth and more adaptation out of you. Not throw everything else away, but we can't emphasize the um, way of training and modalities of training before to expect and expect you to get better without any new novelty. And that's the thing we have to remember. Novelty is key. You have to have diversity and variety of training. So let's say an athlete spends a year or two, or like I'll use Daniel Herrera, great example. His collegiate years at UCLA was with Forrest Braden, who's now William & Mary. Excellent man, smart coach, great competitor, very aerobically focused program. And for that age group and for those types of guys he recruits, it works and it works well. But when Dan joined me, I said, look, speed, lifting, plyometrics. He was very hesitant at first. But ever since then, he's broken four minutes every year in the mile multiple times because of that new novel stimulus. And actually recently before the whole pandemic and shutdown of essentially the competitive 2020 season outdoors, we started to come back to some more aerobic type focused work. And saying now that's now because we've been away from it or you've been de-emphasizing it for two, three years, it's a novel stimulus again. <laughs> so we're going to reintegrate that now that you have this these prerequisites of speed, foot speed underneath your belt. And so as a coach, that's why you can't just say, unless you coach the same age group and you only have four years and that's it, you know, you might be able to get away with the same coaching paradigm year after year after year. And depending on who you're coaching, and if they have lots of testosterone naturally coming through them every day, more and more and more, you might get away with that philosophy. But for people who work with a, a, a varying populace, a varying age and ability, we have to keep leveling up. We, as coaches, have to keep finding a new novel approach or ingredient that's going to benefit the athlete and benefit their competitive and physical ability. Um year after year after year. If we stop, if we just stay in our little like circle of safety or our circle of competency and don't try to grow and expand that, you know, again, we've missed the plot and are no longer having that joy and enjoyment of being serious about your craft and your work and your profession instead becoming obsessive because I have the secret formula. I know it works. I'm just going to keep plugging away because I had some success or coached a champion or a championship team. And that's it. That's the way it's done. And, and hey, athlete Z, this coach, this athlete C that I coached 20 years ago or two years ago did it like this. So you just copy and paste and you'll be good. That is a very lazy and very um, concerning way, in my opinion, from my worldview, to go about this you know, very sacred art and uh, important art of coaching, mentoring, and helping build people up. You know, I think that's a great way to summarize this whole thing because that's what it's really about. It's it's this serious versus obsessive fine line is finding some way, um, 
finding the point where you can be sustainable and sustainably growing. And sometimes growing means taking a step back before growing forward. But that that's the key to me as as a coach is like, where is that point? How do you cultivate that or motive or, or create that or help athletes develop that um, ability and that ability to discern where that fine line is? And that's what it's all about to me because like to, it's easy to it's easy to fall into the obsessive and have really short term results and leave an athlete burned out, hating the sport, regretting it. And not all obsessives go that way. Right. But over the long haul, I don't think the obsessive type is sustainable. So, like, how do you create it in that serious phase and you know to me someone like uh uh, shalane flanagan who brad stolbinger and i talked to on our podcast was like a great example of this and and she had some great insights into how she kept it sustainable and knowing what kind of lifestyle she needed to to have and at one point she went to her coach and her her company and said like hey i need more teammates to keep it sustainable because that's where i get some enjoyment out of it you know, mm-hmm. so it's knowing knowing what 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 keeps it in in that serious but sustainable side versus knowing what pushes you into that obsessive side. And we're seeing that more and more now of athletes who were in very serious or you know teetering on obsessive um, cultures and teams in high school and college, and who get burnt out and take a year or two or three away from the sport, away from competing, away from following it, and just maybe doing other things or doing other activities. And they fall in love with something new like mountain ultra trail running or triathloning or just, you know, business, normal lifestyles or CrossFit or whatever. And But then they come back after that period of filling the bucket because maybe for eight years they're in an environment that didn't allow their bucket ever to get felt. Uh, refilled because it was cross indoor after cross indoor after cross indoor after cross on repeat at a high level and they had this motivation to want to become someone to prove who they were but the environment they were in was this slow erosion and so it's like whatever happened to that high school star that went to this program it wasn't because the program or the coach necessarily was the bad actor or agent in this. It might have been the mentality that the athlete had that got them initially successful in high school that didn't serve them well to be sustainably competitive or successful in college. And that's one of the things I see the most um, happening now, a new trend where it's just people are so, you know, intense or obsessive about it. They lose that enjoyment and they have to take these periods away. And then they come back to the sport on their own terms after this time of reflection or pause and all of a sudden they have the best competitive results or most consistent results or sustainable results without illness, injury, or hiccup because they have a clear um, compass and direction about why they're doing and what they're doing and they're enjoying it. And that to me is one of the potentially um, saving graces of this kind of pause on life as you know, business as usual and life as normal of this pandemic crisis is that it's an enforced sabbatical on everyone. And it's a more than anything rather than saying, 
oh, I, you know, because Steve and I are the same. We want things to go back to normal. I want there to be a season. I want there to be all these things. Like, we want this because we enjoy it. But it's also been a very nice reprieve to allow that type of, like, filling of the bucket and reflection. And I kind of go back to what Rob Connor told his um, charge at the University of Portland when this first happened. He goes, take the time you need to fall back in love with running. And that's the key. If you stay in love with what you're doing, it doesn't become a, a competition of who has the most or the best or the highest status. And you truly, truly, truly are enjoying the process and you bring that serious play to it. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head and you found the golden ticket that ultimately everyone is really looking for. Yeah, I love that advice from Rob Connor, and I think that it sums it up. Um, fall back in love with running, and that's how you keep, like, you need periods like that, and that's how you keep, you know, on that serious side of that serious versus obsessive. So we'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, John and I uh, thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, Go rate, review, share the podcast if you did with your friends. That's what allows us to keep going. And if you haven't yet, just check out the Scholar Program and, and let us know what you think. And as I said, a, a deep 50% discount for, for anyone at this point. Um, just check in the show notes and um, let us know what you think. Yeah, join the other 300 coaches and athletes who are choosing to level up every day and giving Steve and I a lot of motivation and excitement and joy to continue mining and searching and finding gems like that passage from Gleg Rilmond or a mini course on the psychology of sport and all these types of stuff. Like on our own, Steve probably and I wouldn't make or find these things just to do it, but we feel emboldened and we feel energized by being able to bring it to now 300 and hopefully a growing um, membership that will benefit from that insight.